Uh, Hey, we are in a sermon series called Jesus Christ Revealed, and we are in the process of making Jesus big. We are in the book of Revelation as we are studying through it, and I would encourage you to uh, turn to Revelation chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible with you or you don't have one to click on, um, grab one from the seats in front of you there, Revelation chapter 14, Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Why is he wearing a football jersey today? You'll see. Hey, before we dive into Revelation 14, um, I want to uh, set up a couple things here. Uh, One, I'd like to bring our map, if you will, on our bus tour journey that we're doing. I'd like to bring our map up and uh, take you to a big game, but first our map. Where have we traveled? You can see over here on the left stage, uh, chapters one through five really is about setting the stage here. Then in the center, we're going chapter six to about 16. I may bring 17, uh, 18 over here. We'll see how things go. Uh, then moving into eternity is uh, where we're headed. Let's kind of work through each of these ones. Uh, Revelation chapter one, we've got Jesus is the source and the subject. That's huge. He is the source and the subject. John is not the, the, the one contriving this, making this book up. He's not writing a sci-fi story. Jesus Christ is the source and the subject of it, and yet John is told to record what he sees and to then send it to local churches. And chapters two and three is all about Jesus has something to say to seven local churches back in that day that have application and implication certainly for us today as well. Then we move into Revelation chapter four. We're in the throne room and the father is the centerpiece of the throne room sitting on the throne and and the four living creatures and the 24 presbyteros and and the angels and the lightning and the, the rainbow coming around in the glass-like sea and everything. And then Revelation chapter five, we're still in the throne room, but the lion lamb shows up. The only one that is worthy to take the scroll out of the father's hand and to implement into place the things that are in that scroll and heaven rejoices in all of that. Then we move kind of from the setting the stage section over into uh, what I'm kind of calling the war section here. It's uh, two things are taking place here. Two types of material are being described. The first are judgment descriptions and there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We're working our way in through those. These are judgments that are laid out uh, by the text of Revelation as John is seeing them take place. Uh, By the way, I want to note here that all of these seals, trumpets, and bowls, when we get to the bowls, I'm laying them out here on the map as they're showing in the text. Uh, We have not gotten to assembly mode yet. I'm not talking yet at this point about are they sequential? Does the the one move into the next, into the next, into the next? Or are they running parallel uh, as as some think that they are? Uh, We're not assembling at this moment. We're just laying out the book right now. The second type of content in this section is what I've been calling parenthetic pauses in here. And you can see here that there's like these three pauses in this period of time. The first is in chapter seven, 144,000 sealed. Those are gonna be showing up today. And also in chapter seven, a, a great multitude shows up there. It's like information as the seal uh, uh, movement is taking place. 
place. It's here. Stop. Let me give you some more information. Then we're back in with the seals. And then we moved into the trumpets and then uh, through the six trumpets. And it's like pause again. And we're told about the angel with a little scroll. And John is told to, to eat the angel or to <laughs> eat the angel, but to eat the little scroll. And, and in that, then there's two witnesses that are there. And that's this parenthetic pause. And then we're back in, into the seventh trumpet. Now we're in this big section here, chapters 12 through 14, where another parenthetic pause of a lot of information, content is being told to us. Chapter 12, the, the, the war, the dragon, the child, the woman, and the offspring. It's really telling the whole history of the war. Then chapter 13, by the way, chapter 12 and 13 really are seeing the war from Satan's perspective. And then we got into chapter 13, and there's a sea beast and this land beast that comes out of the sea that's there. And today we're in chapter 14, uh, the warrior king. Uh, comes, and we're going to see that here in just a second here. Now, we're, we're heading in this direction. This is what's going. I want to try and uh, 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 now in all of this, oh, actually, let's bring these together. I'm sorry. Go ahead and hit the next one. Now you can see how all this flows in, okay? So there's two kinds of material in this center section. There's the trumpets, or the seals, the trumpets and the bowls, and then there's this parenthetic pause information in between. If you see that, it makes so much more sense, the book of Revelation does. Well, I want to kind of pause from here, and I want to uh, transition into uh, uh, try and talk about a war game. Uh, I want to bring where we've come, if you will, in some ways, maybe into more of, uh, well, let me just take you there. Uh, we are at the game of all games, and the whistle was blown. And when the first game whistle was blown, the clock started, and we're in Genesis 3. Uh, the clock started. There are two teams on the field. There are only two teams on the field. Uh, we're going to name these teams after uh, uh, key coaches on each of the teams. There's the Dragons and there's the Lions. Uh, don't think NFL Detroit. The Lions have a triad of coaches. Uh, they're not just one coach. I'm telling you, these are Hall of Fame coaches. These are coaches like you've never seen or known before. And they work in absolute perfect unison together, these three coaches do. They have total knowledge of the game. They have total power and authority over the game. And if anyone knows the game, they know the game and they have control in it and over it. They are unlike any others in the entire stadium. They are completely set apart from anyone else in the entire stadium. Well, behind and around this coaching triad is a host of angelic coach assistants. Um, they love being on this team. They love being on this team and they absolutely adore being a part of serving these three triad uh, coaches. The other side of the field, the Dragons. It's named after their coach. They really only have one central coach, um, but he also has a host of assistants with him as well. The Dragons coach is often called the Dragon, and he actually thinks that he's equivalent to the three triad coaches on the other side of the field. He thinks he is, but he is so not. He's nothing like them. He's wicked, he's evil, he, in, in ways beyond imagination. And he loves to show himself as awesome. 
Uh, but he's all lies. He doesn't really care about any of his assistants. He doesn't really care about any of his players. He's on the field, at the sideline, to be all about him, and he's using every one of them. And he's a dirtbag. He hates the Lions' coaches more than you can even fathom. In fact, the only reason he's out there is because he hates the the triad of coaches on the other side of the field. He's already lost the game. Even when it got started, he was told he lost. But he's got nothing to lose. So he's letting it all hang, and he's going for broke. The players... Players on the field consist of every person that is living on the earth. Every person. There are no individuals on the sidelines. It's just the coaches or coach and their hosts. Every person that's living is on this field. Some think they're on the sidelines. Some think they're in a neutral place. But there is no neutral place. The stadium seats, they're filled. The stadium seats are filled with every person that has lived since game start. And uh, in fact, they call these the intermediate state seats. (laughs) I'm having some fun with this, trying to. And everyone over redemptive history that has ever lived is up in these intermediate state seats. And uh, there are two sides. There are those that are on the side with the dragons and there are those that are on the side with the lions. And I got to tell you this, when you go and you take a look at all those sitting up in the, in the stadium seats uh, over with the dragons, I'm just telling you, they're not looking very happy. In fact, uh, it looks pretty miserable. Those over on the uh, lion side, I'm telling you, those boys and girls, they know how to cheer. They really know how to cheer. There's no neutral ground on the field. There's no neutral ground in the stadium. There are only two teams. And everyone who enters the stadium starts out actually as a player on the Dragons, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But the Lions three coaches and the players on the Lions team, they're doing everything they can to have people on the Dragons team to, uh, uh, to, to rip up their contractual agreement start out and to come over to the other team. They're looking for free agents. They're calling them to come on over and join the other team. It's interesting because everyone that does, every one of the Dragons players that ends up switching over and going over to the other place, I've noticed something, and I've noticed that there's the, uh, the second coach of the triads got this book, and it's like every time one of the Dragons players ends up coming over to the Lions team, he checks off in his book, he's already got that name there. Isn't that cool? And, and yet they are making the choice to do that. Go figure that out. <laughs> the first half of this game is comprised of, let's call it Old Testament history. Uh, halftime, let's call it the 400 years between the Testaments. Uh, the start of uh, the second half started with a bang. 
It started with, uh, get a load of this, the second coach on the triad of coaches actually suited up and came into the game on the field. And it was like everybody was thrilled about this, but, but then after a little while, the whole thing went uh, pretty sour. About a minute into the second half, the coach player was hit with a crushing blow. In fact, it looked like a lethal blow. In fact, uh, he was so laid out, it seemed like three days. During it all, the dragons were cheering at victory. Those on the Lions team were just stunned and kind of confused as to what in the world was going on. But as the coach player was being carted off the field, to everyone's shock, all of a sudden he just stood up. And he walked off the field and he stepped right back in his coaching position, looking just the way he had been before, but he had a few wounds yet to show. But he was full strength. And what seemed like a disaster was actually the game plan all along. It's now the fourth quarter. Two minutes are left on the game clock. The Dragons have their ball on the 42-yard line. Some call it the 1260 line. Think. The score is seven to six. You figure out who has what. And the vibe on the field is actually the Dragons in these last two minutes are moving up and Tone is heading towards, it looks like the Dragons are gonna win the game. But the two-minute warning whistle blows. Both teams head over to the sideline. They don't get off the field, but they're on the sideline while their coach or triad of coaches has some conversations with them. The Lions gather around their coaching triad on the south or on on their uh, sideline, and uh, there's no time for any player on either team to sit on the bench. You look uh, into the eyes of the players on the Lions and you can see, uh, frankly, a bit of concern and discouragement. A number of them are banged up big time. In fact, a number of them that had been on the field are no longer on the field. They're up in the stadium seats. They're beat up. They've been in war and it's been hard. With two minutes left on the clock, the second coach who had entered the game just after halftime looks into the eyes of his players and begins telling them the game plan for the final two minutes. He begins by reminding them of first who their coaches are. Don't forget who we are, guys. Stay in touch. Stay in tune. Stay looking at us. See us for who we are. And then he goes and he reminds them about the whole background of the whole war since the very beginning so that they get some perspective on why they're even there and what's really all gone on and what's really all gone down. He tells them then about things that are are about to take place, like 144,000 uniquely selected players are going to soon step out onto the field with them. And in all of this, there's a great multitude that, uh, that is going to be a, a whole host of players that are going to be coming from the Dragons team and joining them. Uh, a big work is going to be done. A lot of team transition is taking place. A lot of people are ripping up their t- contracts with the Dragon and joining the Lions during this time. 
He's like, hang in, guys. The last two minutes are going to be awesome, but they're going to be hard. And this second person coach tells them that, uh, by the way, I want for you to know that uh, I'm also going to send out uh, two big-time players here soon. And they're going to have an ability to bring dragons over like you've never seen before. But I also want for you to know they're going to get taken out and they're going to get carted off the field, but they'll be sitting in the seats cheering you on. And the coach told us that at some point soon, we will see the dragons coach put one foot on his sidelines and one foot into the football field. And when he does that, he's going to signal for two of the biggest, baddest football players you have ever seen in your life to step out onto the field one at a time. And they're going to be unlike any football players you've ever seen bring destruction. At first, they're going to come out, and it's going to seem like, man, this actually makes the game go really, really well. But then after a little while, I'm telling you, it's going to turn. And these boys are going to be some of the biggest, baddest, worst players you've ever seen. And they're going to deceive, and they're going to destruct, and then they're going to do everything they can to take out as many lions as possible. All hell will break loose. It may seem that it's all lost. It may seem that game's over. But in the two, in the time that the, the two beasts are coming out onto the field, when Satan has one foot on one side and one foot on the other, Let me remind you, behold, on Mount Zion <clears throat> stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, and no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have defiled them, not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever, is, wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And then I saw another angel. An angel flying directly overhead over the field with an eternal gospel proclaiming to, to dwell to all those who dwell on the field to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said with a mega voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And then another angel, a second, followed him, idea flying overhead, 
He's declaring, fallen, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a mega voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a, a voice uh, from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, and they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Verse 14, then I looked and behold a, a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice, a mega voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire and he called with a loud voice, a mega voice, to the one who had the sharp sickle, put your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Oh, dear God, we are in on the field. And it is a war. And yet, Lord... Though the dragon has one foot in the sea and one foot on the land, standing in arrogance and strength looking, sending out two of his biggest, baddest boys ever from chapters 12 and 13. Oh God, you are the warrior king. Standing on Mount Zion on the other sideline, not afraid, not in fear, not wondering what's going to happen, but in absolute full control. Oh my, you are marvelous. God, I just pray as we spend these next moments in this passage that we would walk away encouraged, hope-filled, and that we would see you bigger. Game on, coach. Game on.
In the name of the player coach, we pray. Amen. See the war, see the victory. We are in this uh, parenthetic pause of chapters 12 through 14. You need to understand that. Chapter 12. Uh, We are told of the war. We are told about the dragon in his war on the child. That's the war. Know this, friends. We are in the war zone, and as we've talked about in this series, Satan's desires and attacks on you and I and on this world, he doesn't really care about you and I. We're, We're just collateral damage. His war is with the other coaches on the other side of the field. And yet in it, in chapter 12, he's warring. In chapter 13, even though in chapter 12 he loses, 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 in chapter 13, we find him sending out two of his biggest, baddest boys. And they raise havoc and they deceive the world. And we've found in chapter 13 that the world is actually following these two beasts. And in all of that, the dragon standing on the side thinks he's got it. But he knows he's going down in his heart of hearts. And I say that because of chapter 14, verse 1. You've got to correlate this with chapter 12, verse 17. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. By the way, the word Greek using for stood there, it's kind of a military connotation. It's like, I'm ready, I'm ready. I'm standing ready to do battle. And this whole parenthetic pause is about the war. And chapters 12 and 13 are taking a look at the war from Satan's perspective. Chapter 14 is taking a look at the war from God's perspective. And that's what we're seeing here. And so now we've shifted eyes over and we see the lamb standing. Verses one through five. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was, was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. We've seen that scene before chapter 4. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed on the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins, uh, these 144,000. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have uh, been redeemed from mankind. By the way, been redeemed, it's a perfect passive. That means that the action has already been done in the past. It's been done, happened, and has ongoing results. It's passive. That means that they didn't do the redeeming work. The redeeming work was done by someone else. God redeems. We can never redeem ourselves. God does the redeeming work. So let's stop trying, acting like we redeem ourselves. But not only just to come to Christ, by the way, but living in Christ. We have been redeemed for mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they were blameless. What's going on here? We're going to be flying through this, by the way. Uh, well, first, the Lamb standing. This is the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. This is no hippie, sandaled preacher dude. This is the fully glorified, magnified, risen Jesus Christ. Full strength, full power. The one that created all things. Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1. This is the one that's standing. This is the one that's being pictured here. This is the Revelation 5 lion lamb. He's the worthy one. He's the only one worthy. 
And he's the one that all eyes are on now. And John says, it's, John looked and behold, along with the lamb, there's 144,000. We've seen the 144,000 back in Revelation chapter 7. We saw in Revelation chapter 7 that the text said that they are sealed servants of God. That they were sealed on their foreheads. By the way, how interesting. Chapter 13 says that the beast ones are marked on their foreheads, as we talked about in 13. Satan's just a, a lousy copycat. He can't think of anything creative or new. He just has to copy all the time. Don't you hate copiers? They just get annoying. Back in Revelation 7, it says that 12,000 from uh, 12 tribes and a unique uh, talking of the 12 tribes make up these 144,000. And in chapter 7, I also noted it just clearly seems there's some Israelite Jewish tribe of Israel tone to it. Some say, uh, as we talked about, that those 144,000 are a symbolic representation of all of God's people or of the church or the fullness of God's redeeming work. Uh, others say that the 144,000 are uh, actual Jewish evangelists that are specially raised up during the great tribu uh, tribulation time to proclaim the gospel. And I noted both views actually have some holes in them uh, with it. And, and I said, I lean towards their, their actual 144,000 as we're laying out the pieces on the tour. Let's wait for more information to come. I lean towards them uh, being 144,000 literal individuals uh, but now let's add chapter 14. What are some things here about these uh, 144,000? Well, let's add some things. Verse one, it says that they are sealed, but it adds they are sealed uh, with the names of the lamb and the father written on their foreheads. By the way, that's perfect passive. That means that it's been done and they didn't tattoo their heads. God tattooed their faces uh, on it. Uh, um, it. It's written on their foreheads, the names of the lamb and the father. Boy, that's cool, isn't it? It's just not like some image where you go, what, what in the world's that on your face? Um, it's like, name, name of the Lamb of the, and the Father. Verse three, it says that they're uniquely tied to a new song. Verse four, it talks about this thing about they were not defiled, uh, they were virgins, uh, uh, and, and, and we'll get it here in just a second, and they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Isn't that cool? I mean, you can just do a song like that some way. Make that up. I mean, follow him wherever he goes. He goes right, you go right. He goes left, they go left. It's super cool. It says, verse 4, that they've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. We'll talk about that in just a second. Add verse 5, that they are without lies. They're, they are blameless. I think we can just say, put the two chapters together, and we have some amazing individuals, maybe whoever these are, but as the data is coming out, I'm looking at the text without trying to force anything into it. It just seems that the text is talking about 144,000 literal individuals that are being talked about here. Uh, there's some problems if you view it as symbolic of the whole of the church and such. How do you bring that into the, to the virgin aspect? Well, you have to symbolize everything then on it. Let's talk in the first fruits, end of verse 4. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were the first and the best of the crop. Hey, by the way, you know sometimes how we do finances with it, where it's like we do finances, 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 we pay for this, pay for this, pay for this, pay for this, and then you have what's left over? And then sometimes it's like, well, you know, God back in the Old Testament, he's like, no, no, that's not the way you do it. Uh, I'll give, it's not giving from the leftover. It's not giving from the last remaining. It's actually give from the very front, the first fruits, the first and the best. 
are to be given to the Lord and, and then taken. Man, that, that's a heart issue that goes on here. Uh, also, it says that no lie was found in them. They were blameless. By the way, this does not mean that they were perfect. This is not saying that they were without sin. It's not saying that. But it's this idea of ethical blamelessness. And I mean, how much does ethical blamelessness show out in a world filled with deceit? I mean, these kind of men stand up in a world as we've been reading about uh, that is full of deceit and especially following with the two beasts. I mean, these are Daniel-like people in a Babylon-like world. And I just think uh, in all of this that uh, all of this comes together that I just, I have taken the position that 144,000 are uniquely set apart group of men at the time that are put on the field at a unique point in time that have a clear Jewish tone to them. And they stood on Mount Zion. Some think that's heaven, some think it's earth. Uh, maybe it could even be both. Um, we're just laying the pieces, so I'm going to leave it there. Super cool sight in all of this. Our God is ready to go to war. Hey, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, know this. Our world oftentimes thinks of Jesus as just a name to throw out when they're ticked off or when they don't have any other word to say. But know this, the name Jesus Christ is that name. He is the warrior king on Mount Zion. No fear. War on. And he is the conquering king. John looked, then John heard. Verse 2 and 3, it carries in this idea. John heard. Uh, it's interesting. And look at verse 2. And I heard a voice. In uh, New International Version, I believe it says heard a sound. That's actually better. By the way, let me, let me tell you something. The Greek word is phone here. Boy, does that sound like something? Ring-a-ding-ding? Okay? Phone. Uh, that, that's the Greek word here. Uh, I think actually it's, it's not a good idea to have voice in here. A voice sounds like necessarily someone is speaking, saying words, but I don't think it's necessarily giving that idea that, that even in this, that the one standing on Mount Zion is speaking something, because here's how it actually reads. And I heard a phone from heaven like the phone of many waters, and like the phone of loud thunder. And the phone I heard was like the, by the way, sound, there is no sound in there. It's put in there, so we kind of, it's carried over, the verbs carried over. It phones of harpists playing on their harps. By the way, harps playing on their harps is really cool in the language because it's actually saying this. Harpists harping their harps. That's literally how it says. You could say it this way, but then it sounds bad. Liars, liaring their liar. Okay, that, that's the idea here, what's going on here. What's happening here? There's this, there's this, there's this sound that's taking place. This, it's like roar of many waters. The one who's standing there with 144,000, by the way, there's not a brook that's going between each of his feet and it's like, oh, it's so serene and wonderful. And oh, That's not it. It's this idea of rushing water, thundering, megaphone 
kind of sound that's taking place. The rushing of water and the sound of thunder by all way. All this is taking us back to Revelation 4 in the throne room. And giving us the same image. This is the one that is standing there. And loud thunder and, 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 the, and, and then the sound that he heard also within this rushing water of thunder. You also hear these harps harping their harps. How do those, those two fit? Note this. One is not overtaking the other. Both are heard. It's kind of like this. Justice and mercy sounding together. How does mercy fit with justice? Perfect unison. How does justice fit with mercy? Doesn't justice crush mercy? No. Doesn't mercy uh, somehow crush justice? No. Perfect unison. Both are phonade. Both are heard. It's heard from heaven. And verse 3, and they, these, these ones singing, uh, there's discussion about what's the antecedent to, the, to they. In other words, who is the they? Are they the heavenlies, the 144,000? They are singing a new song. And it's a song that's before the throne and the four living ones and the 24 presbyteros. We're back in chapter 4 again. And it says that uh, no one could learn the song but the 144,000. I just ask this in all the discussions, who are these? I just say this, picture it. Just picture it right now. The dragon thinks he's the big dude standing in victory and he's just sent in as big as baddest players on the field ever. Other side of the field. And there is the biggest, most awesome dude you could ever, ever imagine. Standing on Mount Zion with the sound of rushing, pouring authoritative, massive mega waters and thunders and harps all in perfect, melodious unity. And 144,000 singing in victory. I just say this, see the victory, friends. See the victorious one. By the way, I, I need to ask, and then we're going to fly through the rest. What's your theology and practice of song in corporate worship? Do you, do you think and look anything like what we see here? You think and sing anything like this? Anything like what we see in Revelation 4 and 5 and here now in Revelation 14? I mean, what's happening here is this is declaring truth and song in corporateness together. And it's a new song. Every song that we sing has been a new song. Amazing Grace was a new song. The Psalms were a new song at one time. 
And here they're declaring a new song, a song that fits with what's going on in the reality of the situation, in the reality of who they see God as and what's taking place in their life. And they're singing it with mega. Is that how you see song? Seriously. Is it anything like what we see in heaven? Because I think this is a fantastic practice place. Or, or is it this theology idea that somehow it's like some monkish, solemn, quiet, scripture-only theology? This is a new song. Or, or I'm just here for the teaching and I'll bear through that song, blah, blah. That, that's not what's going on in heaven, right? Sing it. Let's sing it, boys and girls. Okay, let's be a church that is megaphone from our mouths. Daniel Aiken says, Christianity has always been a singing big faith. Love that. Lastly, John saw a series of six angels here. By the way, on the field, uh, uh, we see the one on the, the dragon side standing from the end of chapter 12. We now see the one who the second person of the triad of coaches, what he looks like standing over on this sidelines now. And, and in all this, along with 144,000 up in the, the crowds, I think, is a part of all this going on, whatever your view is on that. And, and now take a load of this. This is super cool because the blimps come in to the game. Then, verse 6, I saw another angel, another angel, this is the first angel here, but another angel, but see, but John's been talking about angels ever since chapter 4, okay, seriously, so this is another angel, so this is an angel, and he's flying directly overhead, blimp, flying directly overhead over the field with an eternal gospel to proclaim, an eternal gospel, not a wimpy gospel, not a GM embarrassed gospel, but a gospel of good news that is eternal. And it's awesome. And it's marvelous. Change teams. <laughs> Come to the Lions. You want to be on that team. It's an eternal gospel in so many ways. It's an eternal gospel. Notice to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, on the field, to every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. Oh, there's some things I want to talk about that, but I don't have time. Uh, verse 7, and he said with a megaphone, <laughs> fear God, by the way, he's flying above the field, okay? Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of this judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the spring of water. And he's declaring that over the field. Why would he be declaring that? What is he saying here? It's really simple. First, fear him. What is it, where does it start? You've got to see who the Lord is. And we just did. And he is awesome. And he is mighty. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. Fear him. See the Lord. See him rightly. See the Lord rightly. And in light of who he is, see yourself rightly. Fear him. And he says, uh, give him glory. In other words, when we see the Lord rightly, we will then see ourselves rightly. And then out of that, we will respond to our seeing him rightly. 
There, there is a give him glory. It's a, oh my, I am who I am. Oh, that's not good. Oh my, you are who you are. All glory goes to you. Fear drives to glory, which drives to worship. Then I go face down. I'm a sinner. I repent. I tear up my contract with a dragon. And I come to the other team. And the second person of the triad coaching staff goes, check, you are on. That's how you name your know, know your name is in the book. Come to Christ. Fear him, give him glory, worship him. He's flying around declaring this, declaring this. Is this literally in this time, an angel around the earth flying around? Maybe. Or is it this idea that an angel is empowering God's people to be doing this? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's just the coolest thing ever. Eight. Another angel, a second angel, followed. In other words, he's flying. Blimp one. Blimp two. Blimp two is saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. There are kinds of symbolic pictures. I don't think this is just sexual immorality. Similarly, uh, with other times, we've seen the natural reading of the text, but we see in this, it's, it's, there's another angel following the one that is declaring the gospel, saying, Babylon has fallen, it's fallen. Who's Babylon? We'll get there. Nine, another angel, a third angel, followed them, saying with a megaphone, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on their forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name, remember there's only two teams. In other words, the time for salvation is almost over. Angels one and two, I love what they say. Fear God, give him glory, worship him. I love the fact that they declare Babylon has fallen. We'll learn more about Babylon in coming chapters. But I gotta tell you, angel number three, I really don't like. I'm just going to be straight up with you. If anyone who loves this whole God's wrath, hell, and torment forever talk, anyone who really loves that, I would call you to go and study what the scripture says about hell. I would not want my worst enemy in this. And those who say this can't be that God is love, love wins, or that this is an exaggerated imagery and not meaning that, what it actually says, or these are man's source stories built off of ancient stories. Listen, I've heard the arguments, I've read them, and I'm just going to say this to be honest with you. I so wish I could cut this out. I so wish I could debate it out. I so wish I could deny it out, but I can't. I can't. And we're living in a day where all of this is being denied out. I'd love to be able to accept some form of annihilationism of the unredeemed. You die and that's it and it's over. 
I would love it if that was the case because I don't want what the text talks about to have happened to anybody. I would love some form of universalism, but you can't get those out of the texts unless you deny the texts. And plus then, what do you do with Matthew 8, 10, 13, 18, 22, 25, just with what Jesus said? I've read the books, I've considered the arguments, and I've tried to find an out. But ultimately, this is what God's word says. And it's not my job and it's not your job for us to defend who God is. This is who God says he is and what he does. And even when I don't like it, even if sometimes I don't understand it, this is what Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ Subject and source of. John isn't saying this. The Lord is saying this. So what do you do with that? Verse 12 and 13, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. Oh, there's the third person of the triad. And they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So many things I could say here, but know this. Endure. Endure in faith. Chapter 12, verse 11. Love not our lives even unto death. Endurance and faith, no matter how much we've been hurt, no matter how tired, blessing and rest await. By the way, Doug Yoder passed away the other week. Some of you know him. He's in the stadium seats, friends. Blessed and rested from the war. And if he were here today, he would say, one, I'm glad I'm off the field. Two, it was worth every warring moment. Keep at it. I'm sorry, I'm really over time here. Let me finish here with these three. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man. That's Revelation 1.13. This is Jesus Christ with a golden crown, a Stephanus crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Not just a dull sickle, but a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a megaphone. You can almost see like with a megaphone. To him who sat on the cloud, put your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. By the way, some say that like a son of man is not referring to Jesus because an angel would not be telling Jesus what to do. This is not an angel telling Jesus what to do. This is an angel declaring what Jesus is about to do. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle, and another angel came out uh, from the altar, from the altar in the temple, uh, the angel who has authority over the fire. We've met this one before, chapter 6 and 13. Uh, um, 
And he comes out with a megaphone eh, to, to, to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle, crossed the field, gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So many things I could say. Just going to leave it there. Let me just say this you do not want to be on the dragon's team. You do want to be on the lion's team. And on the lion's team, there is no sitting around, there is no standing around on the field. Because when you're just standing around on the field, I promise you, you will get smacked by the opponents. The two-minute timeout is over. These are the kinds of things that the whole book of Revelation is being told to us. How do you walk away? How do you enter back in the final two minutes of the game? Three things I would suggest. One, this thinking might be coming. I want as many as possible in the dragons to change teams because I don't want any of them to have happened what I just heard. Come, dragons. <laughs> I want those teammates. Come, come over. Tear up your contract and come to Christ. I want to be involved in helping as many as possible do that. See the Lord, respond to it, go face down and play his game on his team. Second, it might be this. I enter in the last two minutes of the redemptive football game and I'm tired and weary, have injuries, but in faith, by God's empowering work in me to the end. No standing on the field. No distracted. Game on. Third and last. There's some obvious things here in this conversation that just took place that I really don't get from my coach. But you know what? I trust him. I'm not even quite sure what he meant by 144,000. I'm not even quite sure what he meant by the great multitude. I'm not even quite sure what he meant by two witnesses. I'm not really even quite sure what he meant about this like a whole eternal hell thing. I'm not really even sure whether I get all this, but I do know this as I look into my coach's eyes, I have full trust in what he says. And I don't have to get everything, but I just need to get out there and play. Lord God, we leave it there. We leave it in your hands. You are the lamb. You are the lion lamb. You are the redeemer. You are the one who, who draws, who works. You, you, you are the one who creates. Oh God, you're just everything. Lord, I would pray if there's anyone in here this morning that is just uh, out on the field of life and honestly is confused what team they're on. Oh God, I pray that you would work in them to bring them clarity. And I pray that they would come and ask, that they would ask somebody, how can I know whose team I'm on for sure? 
And God, I pray for those on your team. We may be exhausted, we may be worn, we may be confused, we may be hurt, we may just plain be beaten up. But I would just pray for a sustaining grace. Give us endurance and faith. We are weak. But you are strong. God, I would just pray that we would be a church that endures in who you are. Save us from ourselves, Lord. Eyes fixed on you. In the Lamb's name we pray, amen.